In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. At no other point in the liturgical year can those opening words be so apposite as they are on Trinity Sunday, when we celebrate the great truth which they invoke, known to us as the Trinity. The words of the epistle which we have just heard add, though, a certain urgency, namely saying, examine yourselves to see whether you are living in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to pass the test? And it's incidentally all too telling that the revised common lectionary invites us actually to omit that section and to read instead just the ending. Agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Very encouraging, very important words, but not quite the whole message. And such coziness is a far cry from the words that are even sharper in the full text of the Quicunque Wult, otherwise known as the Athanasian Creed, by tradition said often today, as we did this morning at morning prayer. And that opens quite crisply by saying, whosoever will be saved before all things, it's necessary that he hold the Catholic faith. Which faith, except everyone do keep whole and undefiled, without doubt he shall perish everlastingly. And the Catholic faith is this, that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity. Then again, it's all very well saying this, and saying this is what we must believe, but to what degree must we understand what we believe first? After all, how many who claim to believe, perhaps rather glibly asserting the creed each week, really understand it all? And if one does not fully understand it, can we be said fully to believe it? Is there not perhaps something paradoxical going on here? But even before getting into that, there is surely another paradox we might notice, and if there is one theme that always engages with the Trinity, it is that of paradox. It is the modern contemporary paradox of our culture and religion. For here it is striking to notice the sense of indifference with which many look at Christian doctrine. Not as we might expect merely people outside the church, but even those within it. The very idea that people could possibly be so engaged by doctrine as to end up in passionate dispute is commonly now seen with surprise. And that surprise reflects a very interesting aspect of contemporary culture, which is the seeming presumption that disputes about religious beliefs are not simply worth serious disagreement. They simply don't matter enough. After all, when did you last sense real passion roused by a discussion of, say, the Trinity or theories of atonement, or even, perhaps even more surprisingly, the understanding of the Eucharist. Yet how different it was in the time of the early church when one of the fathers wrote that one could not enter a shop 
or even go to the barbers in Byzantium without getting caught up in a passionate dispute about how the Father and the Son related to the Holy Spirit. And even in the Victorian era, church trials were conducted and some clergy ended up in prison on account of theological disputes and different understandings of the sacraments and their role in church life in particular. Often we look back at the medieval period or other times of religious persecution, for example, and congratulate ourselves on how much better we are. We don't burn people at the stake because we realize that this sort of thing doesn't matter enough to bother doing it. But then again, we may transcend such pettiness because we now do not merely tolerate religious differences, instead we celebrate them as all part of our ever-expanding quest for, for diversity, a quest which has at its cost the intensity of belief with which religious traditions have traditionally understood themselves. But then again, is all of that the full picture? Surely what's often meant by diversity is something affirmed and celebrated as somehow an intrinsic good of itself, which is hard to imagine lest the principle itself be non-diverse. Is it not actually an appearance of diversity underpinned by an underlying uniformity and more specifically uniformity of thought that is often wanted, despite all the language affirming diversity of mere appearance? Then again, amidst the wokeism of our time, is it not in fact the case that there are some who make much protest amidst proclamations of their own virtue, of course, who think it is very right and needful to visit increasingly severe punishments effectively on people who think the wrong thing? And because of that, our disagreements about ideology are getting as hot as any used to be about theology. There is, in short, a new Puritanism let loose, which combines with an old-fashioned and very blunt iconoclasm that wants to smash memorial windows and destroy memorial statues, statues with a zeal not seen since the roundheads in England and before them the original iconoclasts of early church history. And just as we congratulate ourselves on the long-gone Inquisition, it would seem that some of its dark practices are being sought for a return. Is that not what it means when it is claimed that those of a differing point of view should be denied a hearing or deplatformed in the language of today and cancelled? Like recalcitrant heretics, they are compared to those who should not thus be allowed to speak lest they corrupt their hearers. Worse still is the denial of open discussion and debate. Do those who seek the right to silence others with different views risk adopting something dangerously close to an authoritarian intuitionism enforced in the name of secular gods by a new secular priesthood? Ironically, only this last week, in celebrating the feast of Justin Martyr, a martyr of all those years ago, I recalled that in his first apology, he argued in what was unique in that genre of the apology as an essentially a legal brief, that a standing presumption of the law then should be overturned and that Christians should be charged in Roman law not with being Christian as such, but rather for anything evil that they did. 
This seemingly purely procedural point was actually transformative, for it sought to open up a vital space by rejecting any presumption of wrongdoing merely by fault of identity, which is to say, in that case, merely for being Christian, merely for holding Christian beliefs. He thus challenged the authorities and those who would persecute Christians to look at their lives and their actions and their words and see did they in fact do anything that could justify taking offence. The effect of this was to show not merely innocence, but in the end to highlight the gospel message of hope and salvation by which the lives of Christians were seen to be transformed. This, in effect, made proceedings against Christians designed to persecute them and stop them from spreading their message into engines in the end of evangelization. For by his deeds it may be apparent what kind of man each man is, to quote Justin. Thus did he oppose the politics and ideology of identity all those centuries ago. Nonetheless, Whatever the current dangers of wokist puritanism and wokist iconoclasm, we must hope that there is still an important truth under even all of that to be recovered, which is that in the end, surely we are interested not so much in the abstract purity in ideological terms of thought as much as we are in truth and the ways of reason and analysis by which to sift it In this sense, ideas, and even more, I would argue, the marketplace of ideas and debates about them do matter as much as the quest for truth does. They are part and parcel of the same thing. Thus, in response to those who think of such doctrines as the Trinity and incarnation with indifference, well, we do well to note what the Council of Nicaea and the Athanasian Creed tell us. This means it is important to recognize that the Trinity is central to the whole economy of salvation that Christianity provides. And there is no way around that if you are to be true to the self-understanding of Christianity itself. Yet it is important, too, to recognize that the doctrine has always been seen, in a technical and deep sense of the word, as a mysterion a mystery of the faith, which as such in this life, short of the eschaton, we cannot presume fully ever to comprehend. Accordingly, I think it may well be a mistake to approach our attempts to understand it simply by starting naively with some definition and trying, as it were, to unpack its meaning, which is to say from the top down, rather it may be more helpful to begin by understanding what we call the Trinity as the reflective response of the Church, forged through the early centuries up to the Council of Nicaea, as it thought through what kinds of affirmation and beliefs were most adequate to the claims we as Christians must make upon our encounter with Christ. If we are to do justice to the Church's experience of the life and work of Christ, and that is to work theologically, as it were, upwards. In other words, our reflection should be part of that wider move 
whereby God and his nature, and specifically at this point his being, triune, is seen as comprising an ultimate reality that is the only thing adequate to explain first the world as we find it in respect of God's existence, and then theologically in the light of how Christians have experienced their faith in response to the life and witness and revelation of Christ. As we work on our apprehension to make it real for ourselves of what God has revealed of and through himself. This means in more formal terms that we have sufficient reason to claim the truth in other words for the propositions, the beliefs captured in speaking of theism, the incarnation and the trinity and yet are free to recognize that we are able to do so without being in a position to know in this life fully what it means for these claims to be true as we will in the life to come. And this goes to the heart of the paradox within the writings of St. Anselm, an Archbishop of Canterbury famous for his exploration of both why God exists and the Trinity. On the one hand, St. Anselm can seem to represent a high point of attempts to rationalize the Trinity, perhaps too much. Yet at the same time, and I suggest more fundamentally, he also had a profound sense of theology as being about our spiritual lives and contemplation, as well befitted his being first a monk and then archbishop. What he proposed for each of us is the task, the rigorous task, of serious and fully intellectual contemplation and engagement with what is in the end the ineffable mystery of the Trinity, so that we can each worship God more deeply with the fullest engagement of those rational faculties our Creator has given us and whose full and proper use we owe in return. Viewed in this light, St. Anselm enables us to see that theology, that theology is ultimately an act of worship. Moreover, the effort of struggle with difficult questions regarding the essential doctrines of our religion, our faith, is one of the surest ways to strengthen that faith and character, where faith is defined as the confidence in what we know about God which motivates us to action as we live out our Christian lives here and now as well. So remember then the words of the Athanasian Creed we recited at morning prayer. And the Catholic faith is this, that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confounding the persons nor dividing the substance. For there is one person of the Father, another of the Son, and another of the Holy Ghost. But the Godhead of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost is all one, the glory equal, the majesty co-eternal. Such as the Father is, such is the Son, and such is the Holy Ghost. The Father uncreate, the Son uncreate, and the Holy Ghost uncreate. The Father incomprehensible, the Son incomprehensible, the Holy Ghost incomprehensible. And there, that word comprehensible might seem to be a challenge. But just as the cognate word is used at the beginning of the prologue of St. John's Gospel, what that means is that God's reality is of such a character that we cannot, as it were, overwhelm and sub subsume it to our mere mortal minds. So too do we go on to affirm 
as the Athanasian Creed does as it unfolds, that this trinity is none afore or after other, none is greater or less than another, but the whole three persons are co-eternal together and co-equal, so that in all things, as is aforesaid, the unity in trinity and the trinity in unity is to be worshipped. He therefore that will be saved must thus think of the trinity. Furthermore, it is necessary to everlasting salvation that he also believe rightly the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. For the right faith is that we believe and confess that our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is God and man, God of the substance of the Father, begotten before the worlds, and man of the substance of his mother, born in the world. Perfect God, perfect man, of a reasonable soul and human flesh subsisting. As we wrestle with how to understand these truths through the course of our lives as followers of Christ, what we can do is renew Sunday by Sunday our faith in the creed and ponder it each time anew, as we shall once more in a moment from now, albeit in the Niceno-Constantinopolitan version. For as the Athanasian Creed concludes, this is the Catholic faith, which except a man believe faithfully, he cannot be saved. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Amen.